our, uh, our third week in our, in our sermon series on, on grace, uh, we're talking about grace a lot because I think it's the world's most foreign concept. I think grace is even hard for Christians to understand and, uh, and we tend to lose our grip on it because it is so alien uh, to us and to our experience. Um, uh, so I, w- I was thinking uh, about how to start uh, the, this sermon today. Uh, so uh, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm just going to start by talking about homosexuality. Let's just jump right in. No warm-up. We'll just do it. Ready? So I'm just going to share some stories about how I approached uh, the subject. When uh, I was in uh, college, I just sort of arrived in college, I went to Stanford, and uh, at the time it was like, it, like the whole multicultural movement, it really started there, and it was birthed in the 80s, and it was exactly the time that I was there. I was right in the middle of all the controversies that sort of started that dialogue. And I think it was my second year at school uh, the university administration saw fit to build in the central squares of the campus this big statue, more than life-size statue, of a gay couple in, in embrace. Um, as if to say, you will consider this an important issue, right? So, like they demanded that the student body wrestle with uh, the issue of homosexuality and, and how to approach it. And of course, the, the uh, the doctrine was um, that homosexuality was uh, equal and valid lifestyle, that if you didn't accept it, you were a bigot, and all of this other stuff, which uh, Christians found uh, a little bit challenging because the Bible has uh, some prohibitions against homosexuality, as most of you know. Uh, you know, I was a kid uh, who had grown up on the margins. I had, was directly coming from a very small town, and this was all like trying to take a drink from a fire hose. It was just like, I, I don't even know like, what to do in, in this uh, situation, but I feel like I have to do something. Um, so here's what I did. I started attending uh, the weekly meetings of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance at Stanford, Glass. 19 years old, I just sort of showed up, I started attending, I had a lesbian friend who had initially invited me to go, because I was chatting with her uh, about the talk, he's like, oh yeah, everybody's welcome, she assured me, everybody's welcome. Uh, so I showed up, and initially I was, I was really welcome, I was actually quite popular, I want you to know, I was asked on numerous dates, because I'm all that. Uh, and so, you know, for a while it was going great, and we get into a lot of conversations, and then eventually they found out, that, well, you know, I wasn't actually gay. I was just really interested in the topic, and I was interested in listening to what they had to say, and I would usually insert it in the conversation somewhere. I'd love, you know, what, to hear what you have to say with respect to homosexuality and God and faith and the church and all that stuff, just sort of uh, let loose. And I was welcome there for uh, a little over a quarter, maybe three months or something like that before I was just sort of, you know, discouraged uh, in attending, invited to not come uh, further. But it was really great because I got into a lot of conversations and, and learned uh, a lot of, of things. Here was my biggest lesson. Right? I sort of went in with a, with a blank slate uh, and I expected to learn a lot about homosexuality, I guess, just sort of in general. Not like how to do it, but just like, you know, what's it like uh, to live in that world? What I found myself thinking almost straight away was, I have never been 
among a population of people so intensely that prioritizes their sexuality and their identity so much. Does that make sense? So that we were talking to them, I was just having personal conversation, and it was clear to me that when they thought of themselves, about the first thing they thought of was their sexual preference, how they like to do sex and who they like to do it with. That was like the main thing in the way they conceived of themselves. And from that, followed along a lot of beliefs and values, like, well, it's just who I am, it's so important that I cannot change it, that to ask me to change it would be nothing short of bigotry and hate, and, you know, and then it just kind of got worse and worse from there. But the thing that struck me was like, wow, this is like the most primary thing for you, in terms of how you think of yourself as a human being. And that just hit me really hard, because, you know, most humans are sexual, you know, in some extent. And, and like, I wouldn't introduce myself to somebody saying, hello, you know, my, my name is Jordan, I'm attracted to women. You know, it's like, um, woman, woman, woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and, you know, and there was reasons and the whys and wherefores of that. That led me to think about something that I felt was a deeper truth in the conversation. You know, instead of talking about homosexuality and whether you were accepting of it and stuff like that, it seemed to me that the deeper thing to talk about was, do you really have a choice in how you live sexually or not? And then when I started thinking in those terms, I immediately realized that freedom of choice sexually speaking, is actually the key to sexual health for all us humans, right? I don't care where you're coming from, what your preferences are, what your orientations are. Back then it was called a preference, and then after that it was called an orientation, and then eventually it was called an identity because of, because of what I observed, right? It became more and more fundamental as the years passed on. Originally, it was a choice. This is my choice, get off my back. And then it became, no, this is who I am, get off my back. And I kind of went back to, is it really a choice? Like, do you have a choice with how you live uh, sexually? If you are, say, a human male, you can check. Um, I would say that most, most behavioral biologists would say that human men are biologically programmed for polygamy, right? Uh, for instance, uh, testosterone is the sex hormone. Men spike in testosterone. Their testosterone cycle is once every 24 hours. We have a spike for healthy men. Uh, women's testosterone spike comes once a month. Married men, shut up right now. Just don't even say it. Don't go there. Right? But we're wired very differently. And, you know, in the, in the competitive world out there in the jungle and stuff, and in the competition of genetic traits that is natural selection, if you remember high school biology and evolutionary theory and stuff like that, the man wants to pass on his genes as much as possible uh, because, because that's how genes get passed to the next generation and that's how genes get selected and stuff like that. So it is a reproductive advantage for men to be hypersexual. And so you see that reflected in our biology a little bit. But we have learned 
over the years that actually monogamy and faithfulness is superior nonetheless. And indeed, even sociologists will tell you now that in cultures in which monogamy is the norm, in which men try to be one partner, faithful, a whole life, those cultures always prosper more, socioeconomically speaking. That licentiousness actually really hurts society, or promiscuity really hurts societies, right? Everybody would say that, even if they don't advocate it, um, you know, because that's pretty much proven uh, at this point. So we have learned to contend against our biology, our programming, if you would, in order to be healthy, right? That's because we have freedom of choice. Healthy men realize that they're not forced into anything, right? They get to choose who they are sexually. And like, no matter what your orientation is, I think that that's a principle. So I started talking about this with people. It's like, do you, do you not have freedom of choice. And that's where I started steering my conversations. Are you following me? That makes sense? Here's what happened. I was like 19 years old. A kid from Podunkville. Um, feeling really out of place at this big university. I had a Christian fellowship on campus that was really cool. And Sonia and I, we weren't married, obviously, but we'd gotten involved in this church plant, this church that was growing on the edge of campus. So I'd People started coming out of the woodwork to talk to me, to tell me about their sex lives and about their sexualities and about their attractions and whether it was same sex or heterosexual, all these different things, because I was the one guy who was willing to pursue it and talk about it and get to the bottom of things. Dozens and dozens of people. You know, I was like 19 years old and I was like a sex counselor. I had never had sex. I had no direct experience with it whatsoever. But like, you know, people in their 50s and 60s were coming to me and like, well, I have this, like, this is, this is my attraction. This is my orientation. I don't necessarily want to be this way. What can you do, Jordan? Like, I was a teenager, right? Nothing, just because I was willing to pursue the truth, right? My bottom line testimony of those, they were like the several year period I uh, eventually moved away from there when I was, how old were we, 24 or something like that. Um, during, during that time, maybe a couple years after included, um, I had the great privilege to walk with roughly 80 people who changed their sexual orientation. About 80. I, I counted them up once. did my best. My memory's getting a little foggy now, but... I counted it years ago. So dozens of people who came to me, essentially, this is simplistic, but essentially said, I'm homosexually oriented. Can God change me if I want? About 80 times it worked out. Right? And that became my testimony. Not really the point of the story. The point of the story is I tried really hard to get behind the issue to the deeper truth. It's like, this really isn't an issue about homosexuality. This is an issue about sexual freedom and health for everyone. You see that? To me, that's a story about grace. Uh, I just wanted to tell that to sort of characterize. Grace should help you pursue truth and also apply it really well, apply it constructively. All right, now we'll warm up after coming out of the blocks talking about homosexuality. Uh, we'll kind of warm up. So roll your shoulders, crack your neck, crack your knuckles, hit the person next to you. If they have fallen asleep, 
uh, we're doing this uh, sermon series on grace. As Quark's quiz showed, not all of us are tracking precisely. <laughs> so we'll, we'll warm up with a review. We'll warm up with review. Uh, what makes it hard to talk about grace these days is because I think grace is terribly out of fashion. And also there are a lot of very challenging, almost catastrophic things happening in the world that make me want to be judgmental and angry and, and, and scared. I think there are, are evils in the world that makes me want, make me want to judge people. And people are so upset and so accusatory in the world right now, it makes me not want to speak out. So it makes me want to be untruthful. And both of those things are going on simultaneously. All these scary things sort of coinciding. And it started with a nasty political season. Uh, COVID broke out and everything that's involved with that, all these policies and accusations and nonsense, uh, social justice explosions and, and, and race issues. And it's just kind of gone on from there. You know, Putin invaded Ukraine and China is locking down Shanghai. It's like all these incredible things going on that are, that are quite literally killing people. And it makes me not want to be a person of grace. It makes me want to be a person of, I don't know, judgment and control. Um, definition of grace, grace equals truth plus generosity. Cami nailed it. She got a shirt. She is the MVP of the day. Truth and generosity together. It's like two wings of a bird. And if you just have one, the bird can't fly. It just flops around ingloriously. You have to be generous and you have to be truthful together if you want to soar. Remove either one and it leads to destruction. For instance, if you are all about the truth wing, right, and you're not generous, then you become rigid. You become, uh, you know, unhelpfully religious. You become accusatory. And nobody can survive in that kind of culture. But if you're all generosity and no truth and no discipline, then you just become, you're just all nice, nice and accepting. And you lose track of what's true. You use, lose track of what's healthy and what the rules are. I liken it to a parent who always gives a child what the child wants. How healthy will that child be? Not healthy, thank you. I feel like I might have lost you somewhere along the way. Uh, yeah, McDonald's, everything. <laughs> right. Um, grace gets you the freedom to try, freedom to repent. We covered that. The opposite of generosity would be judgmentalism, and the opposite of truth would be like licentiousness is a word that I use, which just means you do anything you want or you think anything you want. The opposite of truth might be I mean, you could just as well say that it's lies, right? Or you could say that the opposite of truth is untruth. Uh, that's the word that I want to use today because the opposite of a culture of truth is a culture in which you don't pursue truth and you lack confidence in truth. You lack confidence in the power of truth. And frankly, I think that's where we are today in the church. I think that we have lost confidence in truth. Not just like what the Bible says, sort of truth, but just truth generally. I think the, the world has kicked our butt, and we no longer think it's powerful to speak truly about things. We think it's powerful to be nice. We think that being nice is far more powerful than being true. Think about this for a second. I mean, really think about it. Do you believe more in the power of being nice or in the power of being truthful? 
seriously think about that for a second. What's your go-to? Niceness or truth? How many say nice? How many say true? Yeah. You guys are more honest than first service. Everybody in first service said, oh, we believe in truth, we're Christians. And I was like, you're all lying, you don't believe in truth. <laughs> uh, I think our, our, uh, our instinct is, when we need to speak something that's true, if it's challenging, we slather on so much niceness that the flavor of truth can't even be tasted anymore. Right? We are so passionate about accepting people where they're at, which is great, right? But it's, it's like all we do. It's like all we do. We think that that alone will be curative, will be changeful. But without truth, it will not be. It will be one wing of the bird, and it will just flop around and lead to bruising and damage. We have lost our confidence in truth, and therefore, we are quite content not to pursue it. And the one thing I did when I was a 19-year-old idiot in, at university is that I just pursued it. And I found out that my willingness to pursue it made me a star in the universe. Right? And everyone else was scared to go there. And as a result, people flocked to me. And even though I was an ignorant teenager, I was able to help dozens and dozens of people. Why? Well, it all started because I, I just didn't know any better, and I decided to have confidence that there was something truthful to be discovered and that it would be powerful. That's that whole story. And, and it worked. Parenthetical note, it's very hard for me to... Uh, to talk about it today because culture is far less inclined to listen to any truth I have to speak today than it was back in the 80s. Right? I'll get shouted down uh, often by Christians. They're like, that's not nice! Because we really believe in the power of niceness and acceptance, as we should. <laughs> we should just also believe in the power of truth. Not Bible-thumping truth, but actual get to the bottom of things true. You know those Christians, like whenever the topic of homosexuality comes up, they say, all homosexuals should burn in hell. You know those Christians? Of course. I'm 55 years old. I've been walking with the Lord my whole life. I don't know a single one. I've never actually met one. Which is indicative to me of something. I mean, I know they exist. I know they exist because CNN finds them. They, they, you know, they, they might all exist in a single church in Florida. I'm not sure, but, but they are out there, right? I mean, we all know that they're out there. I just, honestly speaking, I've never actually met one. I think Christians are incredibly nice people, right? I, I think they really try hard uh, to be accepting, and, and I know just precious few Bible thumpers. I know people who are inelegant with the way that they talk about things. They can be clumsy. I, I actually don't know. Of, of Christians that are hyper-judgmental in the caricatured manner that we see in all the Hollywood movies. You know? We really, really try. I don't think niceness is our problem. I, I, I think confidence and facility with truth is our challenge, by and large, these days. But, I don't know, that's just me. You're free to disagree with me because this is an atmosphere of grace. Uh, and, and you can go for it. Anyway, um, I want to talk today about uh, applying grace in an atmosphere of untruth. 
applying grace in an atmosphere in which people have lost their confidence in truth. Um, and uh, boy, we've lost our confidence in truth a lot in, in, in broader culture. Have you been following um, the story about uh, the Board of Disinformation Governance? You know what I'm talking about? Have you heard that story? I'd, I'd be interested to know. Raise your hand if you've heard that story. And some of you don't even know it. Fascinating, right? Fascinating. There's just such gaps in, in our awareness. I'm not blaming you guys because it totally depends on where you get your news. Um, the Board of Disinformation Government. Here's, here's the story. As best as I understand it, here's the story. I, I just feel like this is indicative of where our culture is right now. Um, so, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, with COVID being the issue that it is and all the other controversial issues as well, there's been a lot of censorship on social media, right? You've been following that story, right? So, like, if you say the wrong thing, whether it's wrong scientifically or wrong politically, then, then your YouTube account gets suspended or your Twitter account gets suspended and, and Google is using algorithms that suppress news stories that have a certain content and elevate news stories. So all this is, and it's obviously happening and, and at this point nobody's even deny it. There's been congressional hearings on it. Facebook has been a big player and stuff like that. They sort of played a very, very active role in the last election, suppressing some things, pushing some things. And so people are getting upset about this. So there's this guy, Elon Musk. Have you heard of him? Yeah, he, he makes cars and stuff. Um, so he bought Twitter, right? It's this huge social media platform. Have you heard of Twitter? I'm just gauging because I don't have a Twitter account. Um, because he's a free speech advocate and he's become very upset because Twitter was only allowing certain things to be said and they were this very left-leaning as it turns out, but like any censorship was, was offensive uh, to him and so he bought it or he's in the process of buying it because it turned out that Twitter was falsifying the number of accounts that Twitter had <laughs> and to make themselves look more valuable than they were and so that's a big thing. But anyway, bought Twitter. So as far as I can tell, in direct response to that, it was just like a matter of just a few days afterwards, the current administration in Washington announced the establishment of the Board of Disinformation Governance. So, and it was a Department of Homeland Security. And the idea was to keep the homeland safe, the current administration would now have a governmental department that was in charge of saying what is information and what is disinformation, what is true and what is not true. And they, uh, Pointed this woman named Nina Jankovic, uh, who was in charge of it. He was a very, let's say, theatrical person. If you've been following the story, you know what I mean. Um, and this was immediately met with blowback. Do you, have you guys ever read George Orwell, 1984, Animal Farm? Anyone? Can you read that? Uh, what was a caricature of socialism? Because Orwell started as a socialist and then he changed his mind because, you know, like, the Soviet Union became very evil and stuff like that. And he was like, wait a minute. Um, and in, in, in Orwell, in Animal Farm, they had the Ministry of Truth, which was the government decided that they would have a, a governmental department in charge of defining what was true, and you were only allowed to accept that. And that's how the socialist government kept control. And so critics were calling the Board of Disinformation Governance, great name, by the way. They thought hard about that. They were calling it, well, this is just the Ministry of Truth. There was a big blowback. It was a very embarrassing. So just this week, uh, the administration announced that they were abandoning their plans for the Board of Disinformation Governance. Uh, 
but I, I, think, I think it shows two things. This is why, like, whatever your opinion of the administration or disinformation or whatever, whatever. like, that, that, does, that part doesn't matter. What, what it shows to me is two things. One, that people are really trying to control a lot right now. And, and uh, the, the opposite of grace is control. Grace is about freedom, which requires a certain amount of lack of control, the willingness to let things be rough and gray sometimes, right? Really trying to control such that the government feels the need to tell you what is true and what's not in the world, which is a little bit laughable because, like, you look at COVID policy and it's been here and then here, here and then here. Like, this is not an effective treatment. Suddenly it is an effective treatment. And, like, all these things, right? Because why? Well, because... It's new, and we're human, right? And we don't understand it perfectly. So, but anyway, trying to control it. So it shows that, that people aren't really into grace. They're really into control. And it shows that, on the other hand, that people don't trust your truth anymore. Right? Board of disinformation government, I don't trust the government to tell me what to believe. I don't trust your truth anymore, and I like you. Uh, well, um, you know, we, we, because it's, it's, not your, it's not truth, it's your truth. Your truth, right? It's not, it's not my truth. And so, like, um, everybody's trying to control and nobody trusts. And the aggregate effect of that is, like, just nobody has confidence that, well, the truth can be found or that sharing truth is going to do one dang bit of good for anyone. And so we're caught in a culture of untruth. You understand what I mean? That was sort of characterized it for me. And there are lots of other things we could talk about, you know, truth culture and, and you know, all of the COVID stuff, you know. Is COVID the flu or is it a serious threat? Well, that was a big deal. Masks, no masks. That went back and forth several times. Um, uh, the shutdown policy is effective, not effective. You know, they save lives. Recent studies show that they probably cost lives. And, Anyway, we've just been round and round and, and round on that. Here's another example I thought about. Um, there's a saying in the courtroom that people are convicted on their priors. Do you know that story? Oh, you know that. You know that. That dictum. We have some lawyers in, in the room. People are convicted on their priors. What that means is somebody's on trial for a crime. Let's say somebody's on trial for stealing something. And there's always room for doubt, right? Which is why the standard is reasonable doubt. Has this person's uh, guilt been proven beyond a reasonable doubt? There's always wiggle room. And so in courtrooms, when Kwok is on trial for stealing something, and we're kind of thinking he did it, but we can't prove that he did it, what do we do? And so what juries do, what lawyers do, is they look at priors. Has he been convicted of stealing something before? Right? He, didn't, he may or may not have stolen my car, but has he stolen other things in the past? And if he has been convicted of stealing other things in the past, does it make us likely to convict him on this or not? Right? So people get convicted based on their priors. If we think that Kwok is a criminal then maybe it doesn't matter so much whether we can prove his guilt or innocence on this one. Maybe we'll just throw him in jail anyway because criminals deserve to be in jail, right? Is that fair to play it that way? We should just, we should just handle people based on the issue at hand? Is that how we should do it? 
What's the most important trial that's going on in America today? Come on. Come. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. How many people have been following that trial, seeing it on your YouTube? Come on, be honest. Be honest. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great divorce battle. And, you know, two celebrities, two Hollywood stars arguing with each other. Just embarrassing each other. I actually haven't watched any of it, but just embarrassing each other. And it's become a national sensation. What's the other big trial that's happening in the country right now? Johnny Depp? What's the other one? Roe versus not actually a trial, but it is a Supreme Court decision. What's the other trial going on right now? Yeah, nobody knows. Uh, there's a trial right now in Washington, D.C., a man named Michael Sussman. Oh, you've heard of that. Who was the campaign lawyer for Hillary Clinton in the 2016. You guys remember the Russia collusion story? The idea was that Trump stole the 2016 election by colluding with some Russians who were like hacking computers and stuff like that. And that's how Trump won the election. Uh, the Russians came in and helped him because for some reason Putin and Trump are allies. Uh, so the story goes. It turned out that those accusations were based on something called the Steele dossier, which was a packet of information that was developed by a tech term, a, 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 a tech firm, who was hired by this lawyer uh, of the Clinton campaign, and it turned out that the dossier was entirely false. It was entirely fabricated. It was a complete hoax, but the Hillary campaign used it as a, a legitimate thing, gave it to the FBI, who started investigating Trump on this basis. It turned out that the whole Russia collusion story was false from the get-go, and Michael Sussman, this lawyer, knew it, and testimony came out today that Hillary Clinton knew it, or not today, this week. Um, and so that's this huge story. You guys remember Watergate? It's the scandal that got Nixon impeached. This is 10 times worse than Watergate. It, you know, a thousand, well, maybe. But it's a lot bad. And nobody knows it's going on. Right? People forget that for months after the 2016 election, Hillary and, and other people were going on the talk shows and on the news media saying that Trump was illegitimate and the, the election should be overturned. You guys remember that? Uh, and it was because of this Russia collusion, and eventually that melded into the Ukraine story, and, you know, because Biden's boy was in Ukraine, and, you know, corruption and stuff like that. And that's why Trump was impeached. He was impeached once because of this, and then he's impeached a second time because he said the 2020 election was illegitimate, and that's evidently now an impeachable offense, but in 2016 uh, it wasn't. Uh, like, I, I don't really care what side of the political spectrum that you're on, but if, if you don't get your news from a certain source, you don't even know this trial is going on. You don't, you don't even know. Like, they impeach Trump based on falsehood. But it's Trump, right? And he deserves it, right? I mean, even though this charge wasn't true, it's Trump. And is, isn't it good to not have a pompous jerk like Trump in office, so what do we care, right? Right? I mean, and for some of us, that's a really strong impulse. It's like, yeah, I mean, okay, so they, they fabricated some details, and, and the FBI was spying on the servers of a sitting president. Like, yeah, you know, but it was Trump, so it's okay. And I think 
for at least a big section of the country, the answer is yes, right? And you might be. I mean, there, there are things about Trump that are problematic. Can I say that and be non-controversial, right? Um, I can say that much, right? And, and do, so do we, do, we, do we mind when things are untruthful? Or do we really think, as Jesus said, that truth will set you free? And that truth is a really healthy thing that, that we need to respect. This sort of stuff is going on a lot. That's just, that's just this week's example. Um, and, of course, there are examples, like I said, from all sides of the political spectrum. Um, as a political scientist, that one just reaches out and slaps me. We are far more concerned with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard controversy uh, than we are with this thing as a culture. I want to read some Proverbs. Um, about, I don't know, truth culture, I guess. Uh, the book of Proverbs is filled with Proverbs that are quite like this one. Proverbs 19.2. This is from the NIV. It is not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. Zeal without knowledge. If you're reading along and... Uh, your own Bible version, this will probably be translated a little bit differently. This is one of those verses that gets translated differently. Some will say, it is not good for a soul to not have knowledge, or um, uh, passion without knowledge is a dangerous thing, like something, something like that. It is not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. I think the New Living Translation says, haste makes waste. <laughs> something like that. What does that mean? It's not good to have zeal without knowledge. What does that mean? I'll give you a t-shirt. Do we have any, any t-shirts left? Don't let your emotions carry you away. Yeah, specifically, don't let your emotions do what? Nor what? Nor, nor let the crowd carry you away. Yeah, presumably for emotional reasons. Don't let your emotions carry you away to do what? To not speak the truth? Yeah. Or to dishonor truth or knowledge. Don't, don't let your emotions trump the truth. Trump the, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to say trump. Um, obscure uh, the truth, the facts, something like that. Deal with that. And haste mis makes the way. Haste is usually... Uh, an object of passion, like we're, we're hasty about something because we're anxious, we're worried about something, right? Fear. Here's another one uh, from just a few chapters earlier, Proverbs 14, verse 12. Um, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. The more modern translations will say, there is a way that seems right to a person, or gender neutral. Uh, the old NIV, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the way it leads to death. What does that mean? We had a great discussion about these verses in the Sang Ohana group Wednesday night. These guys are not up to snuff, not like us. Just because we believe it's true doesn't mean uh, it's true, right? You have to uh, 
take a second think, maybe. The Proverbs is filled with verses like this. It's really a book uh, about wisdom. Um, I read this a lot when I was a, a kid. I just loved Proverbs from the beginning, mostly because they were short. <laughs> uh, and you could commit them to memory and have say that you had a memory verse and not have to remember the long ones. Um, it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. You know, that one sticks. Uh, so I would, I would summarize these by saying a couple things. There, there are so many verses like this in the Bible, in, in, the, in the prophets. One of my favorite comes from Hosea chapter 4, 4, 6, I think it is. Uh, For lack of knowledge, my people are destroyed. Or a lack of knowledge leads to destruction, depending on, on your translation. Like if you, if you lose your facility with truth, it will always lead to destruction. Um, no matter how much zeal or passion or emotion uh, that you bring to bear on it. So I would summarize all these things by saying a couple, maybe a couple points. Number one, passion is not a reliable indication of wisdom. Passion is not a reliable indicator of wisdom. I want to write that one down. Passion is not a reliable indicator of wisdom in any area of life. Do what you're passionate about. No, don't. <laughs> don't, right? Uh, do, do, do what's wise and then get passionate about it. You know, passionate is not a reliable indicator of, of wisdom. It's a really, really useful thing in life, passion, right? If you have a passionless life, your life stinks. But it's not a reliable indicator of the proper direction. Uh, so that's number one. And number two, I would say, get to the bottom of things. You know, the Bible is, is ferocious about encouraging us to get to the bottom of things. Don't be shy about seeking truth about any topic, any area of life. Don't be shy about it. And I really think what's happened in culture today is that we've gotten very shy about it. The reason that I was powerful when I was 19 years old and investigating this homosexuality thing is because I wasn't shy about finding the truth. And, and I discovered what I felt was the truth behind the issue that really actually led to freedom and, and helpfulness. And I have total confidence today that anybody can change most anything about them. You know, And I stand on that. And what you hear when I speak about it is my pure, unadulterated confidence and that makes a difference. You know, I trusted truth. I found something. I wasn't shy about seeking out uh, the issue uh, behind the issue. You have to work at that, right? It's not just about making sure that we all feel okay about what is said. It's about saying the most true thing that you can say. Because that's where the power is. And I'm confident. I'm confident in that. You guys are popular. Um, so I, I would I would summarize grace uh, like a, applying grace by saying you know insist on truth, but in a generous tone. You know, truth and generosity together. You can't just be nice. Don't just speak acceptance. Speak health. You know, and health is based on truth. Imagine going into an emergency room. You're having a crisis. You need a surgeon, and the surgeon comes in, and, you know, you've got minutes left to live, and the surgeon is like, 
we love you here. You know, I just want you to know that you can be comfortable in this place and that we don't judge you for having a pitchfork pitchfork sticking out of your stomach. You know, accidents happen. Accidents happen. We've all been there. Let's share some testimonies about those times in which we have been clumsy and had terrible farming accidents. Um, you know, what you want is for them to deal with the reality of the situation because sometimes it's life and death. You know, and you're happy that they're loving enough to be there for you. Um, right? You're happy that they're generous, but you need them to be true. And a lot of life is like that. Anyway, uh, I don't know. I've talked about lots of controversial things today. Uh, I hope I haven't uh, offended anybody, and I hope that you hear what I'm trying to say is that you can't be scared of offending anybody. Um, you just have to be generous and, 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 and uh, pursue truth as best you can because there's a lot of power and freedom uh, in that. Um, so, application point. How, how would I suggest that you move in a spirit, in a, in a culture of untruth? How would I suggest that you be a person of grace in a culture of untruth? I can fairly safely assume that you're all generous people. Your instincts want you to uh, make you want to be accepting and generous and non-judgmental, right? Because that's true of almost every Christian. I'm a little worried that you've lost confidence in truth. So what would I say about that? I would encourage you, uh, number one, to Ask yourself, what's the key truth in this situation? What's the key truth in this situation? What's the deepest truth that you can find? So I gave you an example, like back when I was like, well, it seems like Christians should have something to say about homosexuality that's true, so I'm just going to jump in. And I found that the deepest truths in play were not about homosexuality itself, but about human freedom in sexuality. And that applied to every human equally, no matter what their orientation. And that became very powerful for me, right? So that was the deepest truth that I could find. You understand? So I encourage you to pursue that policy. Those of you who are veterans of studying the Gospels, do you, have you remarked to yourself how very rarely Jesus asked, answered the question that was asked him? Right? He always went behind. So the, the rich young ruler came to him and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then for a minute, they talked about the law, you know, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, I did this. I've kept all the commandments. And then Jesus said, give away all your money. The point being that what keeps us out of eternity uh, is the world's hold on us. And for that guy, the world was holding him by his checkbook. Right? So you always kind of found the thing. Let's, let's not debate things that are unnecessary. Let's go to the thing that's actually going to help. And Jesus was a genius at that. Uh, we won't talk about all the other gospel stories, but perhaps you've noticed. You know that in a courtroom there are lawyers and there are judges. A lawyer's job is to get a certain verdict. And so a lawyer is really great with facts, but only the facts that suit his client. Right? And so the lawyer takes his or her truth in bits and pieces, carefully filtered and shaped. Right? 
Now, the judge is not concerned about getting to a certain verdict. The judge is concerned about getting to the truth. And then if he or she is a wise judge, what they'll do is that they will apply that truth in a way that's helpful to the victim, to society at large, perhaps even to the perpetrator, uh, if uh, the perpetrator is found guilty. A wise judge. Truth and wisdom, that makes a judge. Lawyers are different. In life, don't be a lawyer. Pardon me if you're a lawyer. Right? They serve a really valuable function. Be a judge. Be a judge. Your concern is to get to the whole truth because that's where the helpfulness is. Got it? So I like to, I like to think of little phrases that help me to apply complex concepts. Um, so here are some phrases that really help me when I'm trying to get to the truth in a culture that doesn't respect it. It's either very judgmental or very untruthy, very licentious. And I would like to suggest that there's a lot of power in the phrase, are you asking me? Or the phrase, like it. Are you saying? So let me give you some examples uh, of the power of this. Let's say... Um, Somebody comes up to me and says, so do you believe all homosexuals go to hell? Uh, then my response would be, are you asking me if homosexuals can make free choices about their sexuality? You see what I've done there? I've, I've slightly reframed what the conversation needs to be because what's the point, right? The point isn't, is homosexual evil? The point is, how do people get powerful and free? And that's what I want to talk about. You got it? Or what if somebody comes up to me? Um, is America a systemically racist country or not? Dun, dun, dun. We're scared of that one. Right? Because depending on how you answer, right, you'd be called a bigot or a bleeding heart idiot or, you know, right? So what do you do? So you might say, are you asking me what I think the best way to help uh, poor minority people is? Reframe the conversation. You see what I do there? Because that's what's interesting for me to talk about, right? Because based on that answer, then we might be willing to restructure or change any number of national policies, right? And so that's the question that really counts. You following? Is that hard or is that easy? That's hard? My wife says it's hard. I'm going to get a big talking to when I get home today. So everybody say it. Are you asking me? Are you saying? It, it, it sounds simple and stupid, but I'm telling you that will really help you in conversations. What it will do is help you get your mind to the proper place of seeking the deepest truth. And if you get good at it, maybe your confidence in the power of truth will be restored. Because it is a very, very powerful thing. Finally, I'll just end with this. I've told some personal stories, but we've talked about some national issues because those are the ones that we all share. Um, but there will be personal things in your life where God uses these questions on you. Right? So you'll come to God with something that you're really upset about. 
like, why didn't I get a better job? Why didn't I get this relationship that I wanted? Um, what are you going to do about so-and-so? Am I saying if, I, if we hold on to truth, we don't need to be nice? What am I saying? I'm saying truth and generosity together. That's what makes the bird fly. If you just do one and not the other, then you flop around and hurt yourself and everyone around you, right? I am saying that I think most of you are great at being nice, great at being generous. I don't think there's a single judgmental person in the room would be my guess. But... I also guess that a lot of you have lost your confidence in truth, and you no longer seek it or apply it as intensely as you might. And as a result, you're not being salt and light the way you should be. So there's an opportunity for growth here. There's an opportunity for trying here. There's an opportunity for repentance here, which we can do because we don't judge each other and, and we speak truth to each other. Love rejoices with the truth, as Paul says. Right? So you come to God with something that's upsetting to you. Why aren't you fixing this? And God will say to you in so many words, are you asking me what the best thing to do in your life is? Because I'm God and I know, and we could talk about that if you want to. No, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this thing that offends me. Sorry, Augie. I want to talk about, you know, why you allowed so-and-so to do this to me, or something like that, right? And God will say, are you saying that you really want me to judge them or that you want me to bless you? You know, he will, he will do that Jesus-style redirect. Have you ever experienced that with the Lord? Yeah? Don't you hate it when he does that? I just hate it. It's so dissatisfying uh, when, he, when he does that. But ultimately what it does is it brings you to greater truth in your life. And the truth will set you free, right? So it will happen to all of us, right? Not just those people on the political right or those people on the political left or those COVID fools or whatever, whatever the categories are, right? It will happen to all of us because grace is the currency of the kingdom. Yeah. And we all need to get great facility with it. All right, Too much? Okay. We feel all right? Yeah. Well, Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. All of us are looking at life through a smudgy window. Like no, none of us see things really, really clearly. Um, but God bless you for looking more deeply anyway. God bless you for getting to the bottom of things, for trying to find the most helpful truth behind the controversial truths and being mature people in the kingdom of God and mature disciples as God leads you to the deeper truths in your own life. And that's where the blessing is and, and, and that's what we're headed for, all of us. Father God, I pray that um, you would in uh, uh, the light of grace, uh, point to areas in our own life where we have 
lost confidence in true things. Or we've decided to shelve them in favor of, I don't know, maybe something good like niceness or generosity. But we want to do both wings well, Lord. We want to do both well. We want to be generous and true. We want to be nice and wise. Speak to us, Lord. Father God, I pray that you would perfect your agenda for every person here. I pray that we would all be changed a little bit. I pray that we would all be emboldened a little bit. And I pray um, I just bless you, brothers and sisters, not to waste one more week. Uh, I just bless you to make this week a week in which you change a life. I just bless you uh, to jump in, to pursue truth, and not worry that it, it won't work. I bless you to pursue generosity and to not worry that it won't work. Be people of grace in Jesus' name. For this the Lord has raised you up in ungracious times. You are the salt. You are the light. Be blessed in Jesus' name. Everybody says, thanks for hanging out, guys. Uh, come say hi to me if you're brand new, and come up and get prayer uh, from these guys. They're pretty cool, and the Holy Spirit even cooler. <laughs>